Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part five of a series called Why I'm Catholic. And the subtitle is The Real Spirit Murder. All right, people don't really hate the Catholic Church. They don't. They hate what they've been taught is the church, most of which is untrue. This is a quote from Fulton, the quote machine, Fulton Sheen, that sums it up. There are not over 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church. There are millions, however, who hate what they wrongly believe to be the Catholic Church, which is, of course, quite a different thing. These millions can hardly be blamed for hating Catholics because Catholics, quote, adore statues, because they, quote, put the Blessed Mother on the same level with God, because they, quote, say indulgence is a permission to commit sin, because the Pope, quote, is a fascist, because the, quote, church is the defender of capitalism. If the church taught or believed any one of these things, it should be hated. But the fact is that the church does not believe or teach any one of them. It follows then that the hatred of the millions is directed against error and not against truth. As a matter of fact, if we Catholics believed all of the untruths and lies which were said against the church, we probably would hate the church a thousand times more than they do. If I were not a Catholic and were looking for the true church in the world today, I would look for the one church which did not get along well with the world. In other words, I would look for the church which the world hates. Look for the church that is hated by the world as Christ was hated by the world. Look for the church which is accused of being behind the times as our Lord was accused of being ignorant and never having learned. Look for the church which men sneer at as socially inferior as they sneered at our Lord because he came from Nazareth. Look for the church which is accused of having a devil, as our Lord was accused of being possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Look for the church which, in seasons of bigotry, men say must be destroyed in the name of God, as men crucified Christ and thought they had done a service to God. Look for the church which the world rejects because it claims it is infallible, as Pilate rejected Christ because he called himself the truth. Look for the church which is rejected by the world as our Lord was rejected by men. If, then, the hatred of the church is founded on erroneous beliefs, it follows. That basic need of the day is instruction. Love depends on knowledge, for we cannot aspire nor desire the unknown. That was Fulton Sheen on a show called Radio Replies uh, quite some time ago, but it's still appropriate today. The church that is rejected by men is a church they rarely know or understand. The attackers have not read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is clear because most of the attacks don't even make sense once you crack the cover of that book. A lot of the fundamentalist attacks would be dissolved if they actually read the Catechism of the Catholic Church. So thus, it feels it's useless for me to feel offended by attacks by atheists any more than it is to feel offended by Protestant attacks. Yet I do feel offended sometimes. And um, why is that? Well, it's because I fail to fully surrender to God and his church, hence the need for daily conversion to fight the spiritual fight and to submit my will and intellect completely to the care of God's grace. His will, not mine, will be done. This blog is just a journal of my reasons for believing. And if I didn't feel such a need to express these words, I wouldn't do it. Jesus commanded us to tell the story of the gospel and that his sheep would hear his voice. Seems like a small task for me to at least tell of my reasons for faith, with the hopes that perhaps someone else will undo their own Herschel Walker trade as they've turned away from God, they can always turn back. 
Now, Protestants did not make the full trade abandoning God, but they did abandon the mother church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the bark of Peter, and any other pseudonyms you'd like to use. In Luther's defense, he was living in and around a time when frauds like the uh, the donation of Constantine was a document which, which proved to be a fraud um, that called for questioning, correction, and improvement. Um, the church was under heavy attack from all sides in that era. It was it's it's also under attack today from all sides. But in Luther's time, the new world had been discovered. Science was advancing. There were three concurrent popes at one time, not long before that period. Um, add a few greedy clergy using a salvation for money scheme that would make Bernie Madoff blush. And only he only needed to add a match to start that con- conflagration of fire. It's just too bad Luther's exit ended up watering down the very doctrines instead of shoring it up because he really wanted to protect doctrine in the beginning, even the Eucharist. After all, he was an Augustinian monk uh, from St. Augustine. He was, he was the most, most Catholic Protestant there ever was, at least in the beginning, um, until Zwingli and the hordes came after him. One thing that's interesting is that Zwingli called the Eucharist just a symbol and Luther loathed that idea. Um, He thought Zwingli was the devil himself because he called the Eucharist a symbol. Now, I haven't come to bash Luther as much as I have come to bash, say, Voltaire and Jefferson and the fruit of that legacy of unbelief. I routinely bash the 19th century German scholarship that tried to elevate biblical scholarship, um, and instead they cut the trunk out from the tree. Um, Even though things look bleak, I I have to think of Joseph that is Jacob's son in Egypt in Genesis. Um, after getting tossed in a well and then sold into slavery and then living in prison after being falsely accused of seducing a powerful man's wife, Joseph went on a winning streak. He became famous. He became powerful. When, when Joseph met his brothers again many years later, he said, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That's Genesis 50 verse 20. All of this, all that has happened in the past 500 years is part of God's plan, even the awful parts. We just don't know how yet, but we do know that the name of the game is adhering to Christ, his words, his commandments, and imitating him, which means sticking to the doctrines and not affirming every sin that feels good or sounds good. It means saying no to the culture and to popular opinion. Slavery was once a popular opinion thanks to sola scriptura, as I said in the last episode. Why? Because you can make the Bible be whatever you want it to be with scripture alone. The church put out anti-slavery documents and statements early on. There's sublimus deus from like 1530. Um, Dignitatis humanae, humanae vitae. There's all kinds of documents about the dignity of man, um, what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. The doctrine has never been uh, pro-slavery. I mean, that's just flat-out lie if anyone ever tells you that. Just like today, that doesn't mean every person adhered to the teaching. It's one thing if they put out a document from the Vatican, and it's another thing for people to follow it. If you consider today how poorly the laity adhere to birth control or admonitions about greed, um, we don't do a very good job. We don't, because we're sinners. And it's a hospital for sinners, not a museum of saints. That's kind of the whole point. Uh, there were hardly any Catholics in America, really, until the Irish showed up, which was around the Civil War. And 
guess what? They were hated. They were hated. It's almost a guarantee um, in most places. Catholicism is like the punk rock of all ages because it is always a counterculture. But unlike punk rock, Catholicism has a shelf life that lasts longer than a decade. Um, All of the fad countercultures disappear like smoke. Um, Things like fidget spinners and rolled jeans and pet rocks from the 70s. They are passing fashions that mean nothing to the next generation. The bands that I grew up with, Sublime, Nirvana, Metallica, no one will be talking about them in 100 years. But they will be talking about Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph do not fade. The impact of the saints and the martyrs carries on. The gospel does not fade, even if the books and the scrolls wear out over time and get yellow and brittle and fall apart. The printing press was not necessary for Christianity any more than the internet is right now. Only Jesus was needed and a community of believers. That was the the required parts. Jesus and the mystical body of Christ. That's what was needed. But it's also quite nice that the church has a way to settle disputes with the bishops um, and the believers as time and history introduce new issues regarding faith and morals. No other church has that capability but the one that Jesus founded on a rock named Peter, who happened to set up shop in Rome. Even the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox, do not have a way to settle disputes. So when like the, the church de- uh, made the assumption of Mary official, um, the Immaculate Conception, it's done. It's there. The dispute is settled. We know what the, fa- what the faith is. And all of the fly-by-night sort of um, Bible-believing churches, they just believe whatever they want, whatever the pastor wants, and they move on. But that one down the road may disagree with them. It's, it's chaos. Now, somehow the faith in Jesus starts a new fire every, new, every few years, and the fire always irritates the culture. And oddly enough, what irritates American culture is not the same as what irritates other places like African culture, where in America, the church is hated for its sexual teaching on chastity. And in Africa, it's appreciated for its sexual teaching on chastity. And now this is really interesting because Americans in classic form just assume this is the same thing that's been going on for 500 years, that Africans are, are childlike. That's been the, the, uh, the accusation uh, about the 19th century Americans, 18th century. But this has not changed, folks. Progressives in America preach sermons that treat Africa as less advanced because they adhere to traditional marriage and family arrangements. So the condescension toward Africa today is as bad, if not worse, than it was from the 1500s through the Enlightenment. So which nation is more lost? Is it Nigeria or Uganda? Is it America? The answer is all of them. But America is a sheep that's fallen into a gorge and is in need of being found. But it's not special in that sense. Every nation has its sins, just like every person does. That's an important thing to remember. Everyone has sins. Everyone has wounds. Everyone has identity lies. Everyone has false beliefs. And we all wear fig leaves so we don't get hurt. Um, So, But I will say this. If anything feels good, it is to be countercultural. What teenager doesn't want to rebel? Who wouldn't, who, what teenager doesn't like that feeling? But what is odd is that obedience to God is the ultimate rebellion, but it's against sin in the world. Rebellion against God is easy, and it's undemanding, and it's cliche. Rebellion against the flesh and the devil, that is freedom, and that is timeless. To remain fully alive, body and soul, and to seek union with the Creator is a fad that never dies, because at the root, we desire God like we desire food. Jesus and his church have been the unlikely underdog from the beginning, and these two still are today. 
God has set things up this way. Why? I don't know, but what a joy to be part of the team that calls itself sinners who eat and give thanks together, who receive the Eucharist, the body of Christ. As for all of these isms and movements in history, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the German culture war, French existentialism, Americanism, Marxist atheism, postmodernism, and technocratic utopianism. These are all different versions, different ways of rejecting God. Our desire to eat from the tree of knowledge manifests in many ways with each generation in competition with the prior one. They are various sides of the same set of dice, just rolled a different way. Now, in my own confused journey through the chaff of modern ideas of all these, I actually find that the Enlightenment did more permanent damage than anything else, because that is what killed our idea of the soul and all things mysterious. It denies the supernatural, and at the very least, the Reformation still held on to the soul and to God, but the unbelievers told us there was no soul. And it's hard to argue with dead people in academic scholarship that preaches more than it teaches. The bias in academia becomes glaringly obvious as we shove off the shore from the 19th and 20th centuries. There is a laziness in academics now that assumes historical and textual criticism is unassailable and that tradition has nothing important to say. The assumption is made that anyone writing from the, the year zero to 1500 or beyond is was just kind of an idiot. I'm sorry, but I don't know. They throw out Irenaeus because he made one mistake. They throw out Papias because he made a mistake. You see this over and over where the only thing that matters is the textual criticism, the historical criticism from university atheists. Uh, the Reformation's discussed with tradition led to the dumping of all capital T tradition and the Enlightenment took it even further. But if I learned anything from Fiddler on the Roof, it's that tradition is valuable. If you remember Tevye singing about tradition, he was singing lowercase t, I'm saying capital T tradition for the church because it is a three-legged stool in the church of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium or the church's teaching authority. Now, you remove any one of those legs and of course the stool tips over. So that's why you need all three. But what happened with the Enlightenment was the death of wonder and enchantment. That's the greatest tragedy of the last 500 years of human history. Death of belief in the soul is as tragic for atheists too, because even if you fall for the lie that there's nothing supernatural, you still have a soul and you just need to get back in touch with God to have him pull the string and turn your light on again. You have to get your soul out of coat check and write a bad review of the devil's bar service. Now recall that the devil is allowed to tempt and test us, and it is on us to muster the courage to leave his casino. And that is what God wants us to do, to ask for help, to fight for faith, goodness, and truth. No wonder we love superheroes. That's what they do. Now, if you haven't experienced soul death or the perception of soul death, because your soul is there even if you don't believe it, Consider yourself blessed. You are blessed with the gift of faith. Literally, you are in cooperation with God's grace, and he has chosen you, and you have answered. Faith is the greatest gift we can receive, but it requires surrender and action on our part. Works. The good news, really, the greatest news, is that soul death is not a real thing. And just as atheists mock God as a kind of Santa Claus, I have to mock atheists' unbelief in the soul because 
the joke is actually on them. It's just not a funny joke. It's sad. You have a soul. You may not believe it, but that's because much time is spent in convincing you that God and the devil are not real. You may accept the idea of a soul, but reject God and the devil. All three exist. That's the first step. That's the first step toward becoming whole. Losing your sense of the soul is the greatest tragedy of a life. And if you've already lost that connection, I'm sorry. But start today in earnest to get it back, beginning with the simple prayer request, God, help me to be willing to be willing. Or you can say, God, I want to believe. Help my unbelief. In your deprogramming from the modern cult of unbelief, that's the diet you have to start on in order to get you back on solid spiritual food. Gerber baby food for you. Tiny prayers first. Because God has a sense of humor, if or when you reconnect with your soul, it will be the great awakening you can, greatest awakening you can possibly have. And with all spiritual physics, you have to go down to go up. You have to die to be reborn. This is how it works. Dante had to go down into hell to get to purgatory and eventually to paradise. The non-believers like Voltaire, Rousseau, Locke, Hume, Whitman, and Jefferson, they severed the soul from the body, or they thought they did. For many years, they kind of pussyfooted around the issue with people like Descartes still clinging to belief while he killed the soul. And then later, David Hume and others uh, just came out and said, there is no soul. And that's why we have bold atheists today just declaring it like uh, Yuval Harari and every middle schooler on TikTok who thinks <clears throat> he's clever. Um, if there was ever a spirit murder, as you hear from uh, modern anti-racists, they like to talk about spirit murder. It is not what happens in public school with, with white male teachers, but it did happen by white men. They are right about that. Truly, the modern scapegoat white males, um, perform the greatest spirit murder of all time. But I'm not talking about what modern uh, atheists or, or Marxists are talking about when they talk about spirit. I suspect that most modern people don't even know what a spirit is. So I linked here to a Lord of Spirits episode that you should listen to to understand what is a spirit. But the real spirit murder happened from the white guys of the Enlightenment, the death of God declarations from the 19th and 20th century all came from white Europeans and Americans and Russians. So far as I'm concerned, a spiritual genocide happened that is still being felt across the West. The good news is that they didn't really kill anything because you still have your soul. You just are, we're convinced that you didn't if you fell for it. But then there was also a body murder as well. Just as good as any Dateline NBC might have or true crime mystery, and it happened in the Reformation. Now, what do I mean by that? I'm going to attack faith alone again. Sorry, Luther, but I have a lot of Lutheran friends. I love them, but I don't like faith alone. When faith alone became the basis for salvation, the body was cut off from the soul. So we had one group deny the soul in the Enlightenment, and then the Reformers killed the body with faith alone. Now, how can that be? What am I talking about? Why? Because we no longer needed a body. God was all in our head and our heart. We can be saved just by laying on the couch. In fact, a brain in a vat kept alive by electrodes can be saved by faith alone. A software program could emit a string of text that fulfills the requirements of faith alone. With faith alone, our soul doesn't have much need for this lump of fat, muscle, blood, bone, and cartilage that it follows it around. 
With faith alone, religion moved out of the physical world and took up residence in the ether, the mind, kind of like Descartes was talking about with, I think, therefore I am. There is much I'd like to go on into right here um, about the Eucharist, but briefly, let me just say that the reason Protestant churches are dying is quite different from the drop in attendance from Catholic churches. One of the reasons Protestant churches are shrinking is because they have always just been four walls and a sermon. And if there is one thing that the internet has shined a light on is that sermon alone does not make a church. Sermon alone just makes for a show. It's just entertainment. Whereas physical sacraments like confession and the Eucharist require the body to come along with. But faith alone requires no works. So why leave the house? Why bother when you can just watch the best preacher in America from your house? Literally, a brain hooked up to a computer can do all that is required of faith alone. I'm sorry if that sounds cruel, but we're not that far away from brain vats and wetware. So let that be my prophecy here today. See, a brain cannot consume the Eucharist, which is why Jesus is so amazing. No matter how we try to box him in, he always rises above us. He always is resurrected again. Um, however, let me back up from bashing the Protestants. The Reformation acts caused less damage from the Enlightenment than the Enlightenment. I'm sticking to that. Again, I've not come to bury Luther nor to praise him. To me, the loss of the soul was far more damaging because as soon as the soul is gone that you don't believe in it, so is God and so is the devil and so is the meaning of life. After I had moved on from Catholicism when I fell away, I wandered about, but the situation felt precarious as if I were living on a ridge with infinitely steep sides. And along the ridge, I saw a tiny table and a chair at a mysterious little two-dimensional restaurant. The menu had two options. The first option on the menu was simple, atheism. It had some fancy garnishes like agnosticism or positivism, but atheism was the entree. The second option was the five solas, or mainly faith alone, but it came with a million other options and none of which appealed. I could see other people at their little tables trying to decide and trying not to look into the big empty that was on both sides of the ridge. Uh, many wanted to choose faith alone, but the description of it went on for miles and miles. A scroll rolled out of the menu and dangled over the cliff edge, blowing in the breeze, flapping. It wasn't clear what faith alone was. It seemed like it could be whatever I wanted it to be, and I never saw any food delivered to those who ordered it. <clears throat> Eventually, I realized there was, there was nothing to eat. It was a trick. There was no food. This was a two-dimensional restaurant. There was no bread. There was no bread at all. Everything on the Faith Alone menu was a symbol, not real food. Some people were pretending to eat from empty plates, laughing. They had their forks going to their mouths, and they were taking drinks from empty cups. It was like a tea party of children. And many ended up ordering atheism because of the confusion. And then the waiter just came and thinking they were going to get served, he just dumped the people off their chair over the cliff into the big empty. And that too provided no food. At least falling into the abyss provided a little bit of a thrill, I suppose. But there was, there was no food. There was just waiting to hit bottom and ultimately feel lost. It took me a long time to realize that there was another restaurant one with art on the walls and music, even statues, even statues. Again, not statues for worshiping. I have a link here for you. But there was actual food, real food there. There were four walls and a sermon, but also a meal called communion. 
it was a three-dimensional place too. Actually, I think it was, it's four dimensions. It might be five dimensions. Honestly, I don't know how many dimensions there are yet. If I ever can figure out the transfiguration or the Trinity, I'll maybe know that, but I don't think I'm going to. That's the mystery. And that's the exciting thing about it. There's just so much to discover and it's timeless, endless, and eternal. And it's better than any drug. And the reason why is it's wholeness. All right, that's it for this episode. I'll be back with more in the same series. Thanks for listening.